How many of you were here last night? Good. I think we managed to get most of the rocks off the stage <laughs> before this morning. Can we kill the spotlights? Yeah, and again. So this week and next week, we are going to look at what is the cross all about? What really happened about 2,000 years ago at Calvary? Now, most of us, probably all of us, think we know because it's fairly basic stuff, but are we sure that we know? So I'm hoping, like last night, that we can be quite relaxed about this and that you won't all be holding very tight onto your little theological perspective um, in case I slip in a heresy or two. I'll put my hand up if I'm slipping in a heresy, okay? Well, <laughs> should we make that deal, right? So you can relax unless I put my hand up, right? And then you can be on your guard, you see. I mean, for those of you from a traditional evangelical background, who's from a traditional evangelical background? Well, that's three of you, okay? Um, let me assure you that I believe totally that God honors and holds firm to his word, okay? And that he cannot deny or disregard his word because in many ways it totally sums up who he is. So he cannot deny himself. And that his word is always 100% true and unchanging. Huh. However. <laughs> however. And this is where some of my evangelical friends come unstuck. Uh, it does not mean that our understanding and interpretation of God's word are always correct and true. Right? That's a big, big difference. Because some people get so uptight and so belligerent about hearing things and disagreeing with them uh, because it actually comes up against or offends their understanding. Let me tell you that God is quite happy to drive a horse and cart right through your theological understanding if it's wrong. You know, he doesn't, he's not precious about it at all. Your theological understanding, you see, which you've cherished and shaped and modelled and tweaked over the years. So it's a big difference. So please be open to fresh revelation. And as Paul said last week, have a teachable spirit. Okay. And remember, and if you get nothing else from today, and that might be true, but if you get nothing else from today, <laughs> remember this. You can trust the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart more than you can trust the reasoned theology of your mind. Right? Right? You can trust the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart more than you can trust the reasoned theology of your mind. Remember that. So today we're going to, I'm going to lay a foundation. And Stan was here last night and he was used, he's used to laying foundations. The thing about foundations are they're very, very important, but they're very, very boring. <laughs> you know, when people show you pictures of their houses, they don't say, and oh, look, look, this is the, these are the foundations of our house. <laughs> you know, that was day one as the foundations went in. Isn't that lovely? You know, no, they show you the finished item. 
You know, that's what they say. But the foundations are so, so important. But they are so hard work if they're done right. And they're so boring. Right? And today we're going to do foundations ready for the meat of the teaching, which will be next week. If you're not here next week, you're going through the rough stuff today and you're going to miss out all next week. Alan's not here next week. You know, he'll be sunning himself somewhere. So he's had to endure, he will have had to endure the foundations twice without the blessing live of hearing what we're going to share next week. So we are going to, I'm going to ask you to think a little bit, um, and I know it's a Sunday morning and it's quite warm, um, and I'm not sorry about that because I think you should think in church. So you're going to do a bit of thinking this morning, and hopefully keep up with me, you know. Now, it's a bit of a no-brainer, but nevertheless, it's true to say that how we view and understand God is crucial to our faith and our beliefs. Each one of us has an understanding of God. And we shape this understanding based on our life experience, what we've read, what other people have spoken into us. And all those things have shaped our life experience, but most importantly, our first-hand relationship and experience with God. All those things come together and shape our understanding of just who God is. And if we were able to succinctly write down on a piece of paper, each one of us, our understanding of God, most of us would have a different understanding of God. Because it is based on our life experience and who we are and the journey that we've taken. I mean, we all have unanswered questions. None of us have a perfect understanding of God. In fact, if you think about it, even referring to God as God lacks a little bit of intimacy. I mean, the term God means the creator and ruler of the universe, the source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And when you get up in the morning, you don't go, good morning, creator and ruler of the universe, source of all moral authority. You know, I mean, that, that lacks just a little bit of intimacy, doesn't it? I mean, I remember when my daughter Jenny was very small. In fact, she was about 12, 13 months old. And my aunt and uncle came to visit us Jenny clapped eyes on my uncle and just pointed at him and went, man, man. And, and, and for the rest of the day, she was following him around going, man, man, you see. Now, she wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong. He was a man. True. But the term betrayed a lack of relationship, you see. And that's why Jesus tells us to call God Father. Because that term shouts intimacy. And knowing God as Father is a mind-blowing concept. It was a mind-blowing concept to the disciples when Jesus kind of unleashed that upon them and said, we need to relate to God as Father. And to them that were saying, whoa, you're joking. Father? I mean, that's way too intimate. But even our perception and understanding of God as Father can be muddied and tainted by the experience of our own Father. Because that's our reference point. You say father to somebody and they think of the man that they lived with that brought them up, you see. Whether that man was stern, authoritarian, or fun-loving, or distant, or warm, friendly, or always working, or loving, or old. 
And if you've grown up with a non-communicative father, it can dramatically hinder you on your journey of trying to hear God's voice. Because once you start to hear and people talking about God and God speaking and you relate it to a human father who didn't communicate with you at all, you have this little stumbling block. It's all good sozo stuff, you know. This stumbling block that you've got because it relates to your human father. And when we talk about God as father as well, scripture can throw in the odd curveball as well. Because Jesus talks about a loving heavenly father and yet the Bible also reveals to us a God who is a mass murderer, who slaughtered people, who killed people, basically. Right? Now, people who were here last night can't answer this question. How many people do you think God killed in the Old Testament? Because somebody's worked it out. Somebody, somebody's had that much time on their hand to go through the Old Testament and to calculate the number of people that God slaughtered in the Old Testament. How many, how many do you think it is? Anybody? A lot. A lot, a lot is a good number, but it's not very precise. For somebody who comes from your neck of the woods, I thought it would have been a bit more precise than a lot. Oh, you're more into concepts, are you, then? All right. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Sorry? A million. Any advance on a million? Five million. Ooh. Ten. Is that four? No. No. Well, because, because Alan's done long, extensive study on this, I'm going to ask Alan, how many did God kill? I think it was about 2.8 million. Funnily enough, it was 2.8 million. And that, and that doesn't include the flood. Well, you're sorry. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. That doesn't include the flood. Although, for saying not to include the flood, right, is a little bit like saying that Hitler was quite a good man if you exclude the Holocaust. Okay? So how do we cope with that? How do we cope with the world coming to us and saying, this God of yours that you dance and clap about and say is lovely and is a good, good God, I've just been reading his book. He slaughters people, wholesale, kids, women. And it's there in black and white. You know, it's not a secret book. The world can read it. And that's why we end up with quotes like this. See if I can get through it in one this time. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. <laughs> I always stumble over this word. Misogynistic, see, because I'm not misogynistic. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins, without a surprise. 
Because he's read the book. Because he's read the book and because he's got it in for God, you see. He's got it in for God. Now, in the early church, they wrestled with this contrast in God's behavior. You know, they wrestled with it. Theologians argued about it. In, around the year 140 AD, there was a, a chap called Marcion, who was a wealthy shipowner and the son of a bishop, and he could not reconcile, that's the bloke in the middle, by the way, he could not reconcile the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, or the God that the teaching of Jesus was saying about. He just could not reconcile the two. So, he came to the conclusion that there were, in fact, two gods. There you go, nice and neat. A lower entity, Old Testament God, who was a wrathful, genocidal tyrant, and an all-forgiving God of the New Testament. And his teaching spread throughout the early church. Now, needless to say, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church, <laughs> but he had a lot of money behind him because of his shipbuilding and everything, so he used his money to promote his teaching. And at one point, 50% of the Eastern Church was going down this line of two gods. Neat, you know, clean, able to tell the people over a cup of coffee who were putting you on the spot. Now, it, it actually triggered the, the, lo the uh, early church to actually get its finger out and sort out the canon of Scripture and to sort out what we actually really believe. Now, we wouldn't agree, I hope, with Marcion. So, how do we explain and reconcile God's behavior differences across Scripture? How do we do that? Do we ever think about it? Is that an answer or just an explanation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if God is the same today, you know, if God hasn't changed, God the Father we're talking about, God the Father's there in the Old Testament, God the, and, and the New Testament, are we saying that God got mushy because he had a son? Stopped killing people and thought, ah, oh. we're not saying that, are we? We're not saying that about that because of Jesus. It's the elephant in the room which sometimes we don't talk about. We just hope it'll go away or we can throw a cloth over it. <laughs> but it is true, it is true that our God is a God of relationship. Right? And because we are created in his image, we too are social beings. Your life is a veritable tapestry of relationships. Think about them all. All the relationships that you've got in your life. We all, have, we all have relationships with people. Even ISTJ Yorkshiremen have relationships with people. <laughs> Honest. Now the relationships we have, they differ depending on the, the degree of intensity for that relationship and how important it is. So you can have casual acquaintan acquaintances with people that you just wave or nod, you don't know who know they are, you don't know their name, but you always wave and nod at them. There's those type of people, there's work colleagues, people who you work with day in, day out, but you wouldn't actually meet them socially, some of them. Uh, there's family members, they're people that you just happen to have been born in with, but didn't choose them anyway, but you happen to be born there. So you've got family members, you've got friends, then you've got besties, right? They're friends which, when you call them besties, they make all your other friends feel like they're not your friends. <laughs> That's what bestie means, you know. The blessing of Facebook, you know. 
Somebody's the bestie, oh well, I'm not a bestie anyway. <laughs> then it's boyfriends, girlfriends, fiance, husband, wife, to name but a few. And it's interesting that the more important a relationship is, the more we define it and surround it with ceremony and with words. Okay? Whether that be, will you marry me? That will be, I do. We surround it with ceremony and words to kind of make that relationship in some way special. And the same is true for God. God doesn't have, you know, casual relationships. The Bible is the story of God's relationship journey with humanity. He doesn't want just a fleeting, casual relationship with humanity. He doesn't want just like a one-night stand. He seeks a deep, all-encompassing, full-on relationship. In fact, what God is after is a covenant relationship. Words become important. He encases it within words. Now, a covenant isn't a word in regular, general agreement. You know, it doesn't crop up, you know, every other day. But in essence, a covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. And to help us understand covenant a little bit more, we're going to watch a five-minute video clip from jointhebibleproject.com which will help us understand it, hopefully, a bit more. Right, okay. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, 
The earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. So hopefully that little overview helps you understand the concept of covenant. Now, Sadly, because we, need, we are laying foundations, we need to dig a little deeper than that, um, which we're going to start to do now. Uh, because in the Old Testament, there were, common at those times, three different types of covenant. There was something called, a, and I don't want you to get hung up on the titles, although for some of you, you might be, I just know those titles anyway. But 
There are three, and we're going to go over them all briefly. The first one is a grant covenant, which was what they were talking about with the covenant with Noah, where there is a greater and a lesser person, and they come into covenant, and the greater one takes on all the obligations, and the lesser one need only be part of that covenant and receive the benefit from that covenant. Okay, that's a grant covenant. There was also something called the kinship covenant, now that is a covenant where you've got two equal parties who came together, and marriage is a, a type of kinship covenant, right? And in this covenant, there is a small set of obligations which is divided equally between the two. And the two parties hold those to each set themselves, you see, and, and keep the covenant together. So that is a kinship covenant. And then thirdly, there's something called a vassal covenant, and that is a covenant where there is a greater and a lesser person. They come into covenant agreement based on the greater one's ability to destroy and wipe out the lesser one. Okay? But instead of destruction, the greater one offers the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes or to have slaves, etc. And this often happened when a king would... Uh, would attack a neighboring nation and take it over and conquer it and instead of wiping them out he would offer people their lives in exchange for a level of servitude okay so those were the three types of covenants that were around during the old testament so what covenant relationship are we talking about between god and his people well in exodus 19 verses 3 to 6, and from then on, God proposed a grant covenant to Israel. We're going to read a few scriptures now. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God promised divine protection and the privilege of that nation being priests unto him. And everyone, everyone in that nation, God said, would have direct access to him. Direct access. Let's read a bit more. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So in verse 8, the people wisely accepted God's offer. God's saying, here you are, I want to have a grant covenant with you. Okay? And initially, the people said, great, let's go with it. And in verses 9 to 11, God gave Moses instructions on how the people should prepare for the covenant ceremony. 
And after three days, they approached Mount Sinai, which was covered with smoke and the mountain trembled. And God spoke to the whole people with a loud, audible voice. As it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Wow, something from, you know, you can imagine it, can't you? The CGI they would have had to have splashed out on that scene would have been amazing, amazing, you see. So everything's going hunky-dory, right? Or it seems to be. But at that moment, we have the U-turns of all U-turns, right? Because then the people changed their mind for whatever reason. Well, we know for what reason. They got scared, basically. And they told Moses that they didn't want to hear God anymore. They didn't want to hear God's audible voice. They didn't want to have personal, direct relationship with God. And what Moses should do, would go on, he should go on their behalf and get the rules, bring them back, and we will obey them. We have to swap over to Deuteronomy to pick up on this, where it says, When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live, even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. What, for what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speak out of fire as we have and survive? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. So sadly, they chose rules over relationship. This is when it all went wrong. They rejected God's offer of a grant covenant in which every person would be a priest, and instead they elected Moses as some kind of mediator, and they initiated a kinship covenant, covenant with God. A kinship covenant with God. They rejected the grant covenant, and they initiated a kinship covenant with God. So as part of this kinship covenant, God gave them the Ten Commandments, right? And we've all seen the picture, you know, where they have the two... Now, why did they have two? Was it because God couldn't write very small? <laughs> did he have a big hand, you know? You know, like kids when they're learning to write. They just can't do small writing, can they? Is that why you had to have two tablets? Why couldn't you get ten on one tablet? I mean, if you read, if you read the Bible, it says it was written both sides. It's even worse. <laughs> no, they had two because it was a kinship covenant. The two had to have... You know, it's like when you have a contract nowadays, you get a copy of it, don't you? They give you a copy of your contract, and the person that you've got the contract with keeps a copy of the contract. It was a kinship covenant. They kept the, Moses kept one on behalf of God in that sense, and the people had one. There were two. 
And they stuck them away in the safe, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Let's dig a little deeper about this whole area. I told you to have to think of kinship, right? About how does a kinship covenant really work? And this is how it worked. What you would ha- mostly what would happen is if you had two tribes and they wanted to have a kinship covenant between them, you would have tribe one, not surprisingly, tribe two, right? And they would want this kinship covenant agreement. And they would have above them their God. God one, God two. Different gods, different tribes, you see. And the way that the covenant worked was that if tribe one messed up on the covenant agreement with tribe two, the god of tribe one would sort them out. So in other words, it was the god you believed in that would sort you out. It's no good trying to get the god you didn't believe in to sort you out because you didn't believe him in any way, did you? So it's the god that you believed in would sort you out. And they would write this into their covenant. It says, if we violate our covenant with you, then our god will punish us. Right? This is the step that Israel took denying the original covenant that God gave them and said, no, no, we'll have a kinship covenant with you. Big mistake, right? So this was normal. So if, if tribe one screwed up, God would sort them out and they would be toast. <laughs> toast. Now, in the case of Israel and God, it wasn't as neat and tidy as that. Because you had Israel on one side... And you have God on this side. Now, God doesn't have anything above him to hold him accountable. So what does he do? So God says that he will put himself under his word as a promise that everything that he says he will do, he will do. So he puts his word above him to hold him accountable, right? But also, the same God that they're having the kinship agreement with happens to be the God that holds them accountable because it's their God. (laughs) Right? So this means that what has happened is that Israel has put God in a position of where he has to punish them if they do anything wrong. Now, he never wanted to do that in the first place. He wanted a grant covenant with them, which he wouldn't have had to have done any of that with, but they've pushed him because of their fear it was the fear that made them step away from the original grant covenant they were fearful of God for whatever reason just like we are sometimes when God approaches us and comes in with a whether he wants to do something relationship wise with us and we think hang on a minute I think I'm just going to take a step backwards and so f- out of fear we step back from what God wants to do in our life and we go for a lesser option we try and fudge it you know we kind of make some half-baked promise that we'll do so-and-so eventually if so-and-so happens or whatever. Just like the Israelites, that's what they did. They stepped back out of fear and went for the kinship agreement instead. So what it meant was that God was forced to punish them if they stepped out of line. Was that ever going to happen? Were they ever going to step out of line? You betcha they were going to step out of line because they could not live up to the agreement that they'd come into. Now remember, this was not God's idea. This was Israel's idea, right? And it was because of their counter-offer that it put God in that position. He was now forced to punish them for violating the covenant because that was the relationship package they had chosen that he was now part of, okay? So a God that just wanted to give them everything 
and they just had to be part of the promise, was now put into a position where he would have to punish them if they stepped out of line in the new relationship. This is, this is beginning to, I hope, show you how God's accumulated some of his 2.8 million. <laughs> right? Not only that, within the kinship agreement, God also was at odds with any of Israel's enemies. So we have the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the whoever elseites, you know. And he was obligated by the covenant agreement he was now in with Israel to bring judgment down upon all the people who fought against Israel. So this, is, this number's beginning to stack up, isn't it? This, you can see how. Now, under the grant covenant that God wanted, he wouldn't have had to do that. He wouldn't have to have been in that. So the different covenant agreements resulted in God's different actions and behaviours. Same God, but because of the, the way that people would not relate to him as he wanted them to relate to him, he was put into covenant agreements where he had to take action as part of that covenant agreement. So for the next 40 years they lived wandering in the wilderness under this covenant agreement. And sadly, for the next 1,300 years, people were confused about God. And many still are, like Richard Dawkins and others, when they read the book and don't understand the words, you see. Because the law obscures what God is really like, what his heart's like. Now, when Moses was 120 and was ready to, you know, die, basically, he needed to pass over the leadership of the nation to Joshua. And to do that, under a kinship covenant agreement, they needed to renew the covenant. Right? God was losing his covenant partner, which was Moses. Now, the renewal of the covenant involved assessing how the covenant had gone so far. Now, if you've got two people in a kinship covenant agreement, and one of them has been really poor, really bad, and letting that side down and always violating and breaking that arrangement. When it came to renewal time, you're not just going to happily say, well, we'll just turn a blind eye to all that and just let's renew the kinship agreement. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, I think this needs to be renegotiated a bit. And that's what happened. God instituted a new covenant with Joshua based on the relationship and the violations and how the Israelites had lived their life within God's agreement. But that relationship, that covenant, was downgraded from a kinship to a vassal covenant. So the new covenant that God entered into with Joshua and the rest of the people of Israel was a vassal, which basically said that God was in charge. He could wipe them out like that, if necessary, and they had, to, they had to live within certain rules and regulations. They were no longer meeting on equal ground. And new obligations were added to the covenant. Now, Israel had repeatedly violated their former covenant with God. So that gave God the right to say to them, you need to obey these stipulations or you will die. Now, us here, many, many years back, reading that thing, that sounds a bit harsh. You know, that sounds a bit heavy-handed. That sounds a bit bully-boy taxing. T 
tactics. But actually, God was showing mercy to them because God was bound within the covenant to punish them and he was saying to them, instead of punishing them, he was saying, look, we'll renegotiate the covenant, I'll take control, but listen, if you step out of line, I'm going to have to take action. I'm going to have to sort it out. You're going to have to go to your bedroom. You know what I mean? No tea, no telly, and I'm going to take your mobile phone off you. You know, he was going to have to take action, and that action was sort them out. So he was showing mercy by offering them another chance. Instead of just simply releasing the punishment, which he should have done under the kinship covenant agreement. So, Israel got into trouble by rejecting God's offer of a grant covenant and then being unfaithful in the kinship covenant with him. Right? So, you can see the development, if you want to use that word, of God's relationship with them and how the actions that God has had to take over the years has meant that he has seemed to somebody like us, an outsider reading it many years later, that he was quite brutal in some times and was quite you know, dismissive and would just wipe out people. But he was linked with these people who would not fulfill their covenant agreement with him. Remember, his heart was, I want to give you a grant covenant. His heart was like it was with Noah. I want to do all this. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive what I give you. And they stepped back from that and said, no way, we don't want that. We can't cope with that. So the vassal covenant included the law, right? Which, ironically, we think is, is pretty tough, but was better than the laws of the surrounding nations at that time. It was not God's idea. It did not reflect his heart but it was the best that Israel could receive in that situation. Now that is the foundations that we need to build upon for next week, right? We're going to build upon that. We're going to look at the whole area of atonement. We're going to look at the new covenant and we will discover then what God's ideal really is. But homework. In preparation for next week, I want you to chew over the following question. <coughs> At the cross, was sin forgiven or punished? There you are. You can think about that until next week. <laughs>